0: I want to start this morning, and I'm just going to read from Luke chapter 24. This is uh, the first 12 verses. It's the account of Easter morning, the first one. It says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed, into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. We're here to celebrate that this morning. That a couple thousand years ago, a group of women went to a tomb near Jerusalem in order to give some spices and do some, some sort of purifying work on the body of Jesus and when they got there, he was gone. He is not here but he has risen. Amen? Amen. 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 That is what makes Easter so spectacular. And We're going to talk about that moment that moment of redemption but we're going to do so this morning from a place that's maybe going to feel a little bit different. We're going to talk about that from the book of Zephaniah. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Zephaniah chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. This is what we do every Sunday morning here. We celebrate Jesus, his death and his resurrection, his work on our behalf and we do so from all of the Bible because all of the Bible points to, talks about, reflects upon his life, his death, and his resurrection. So this morning, we're going to work from Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that there is no body in that tomb. Lord, that almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus' body was laid there on a Friday, and by Sunday morning, he had taken a breath, removed those burial cloths, rolled that stone away, and walked out of that tomb in triumph. God, we want to celebrate that this morning. Lord, we gather together in order to make a big deal out of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and His resurrection. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would move powerfully here among us. God, would You illuminate the truth of Scripture? Would You put Your Holy Spirit at work, powerfully inside of us to take that truth, have it applied directly to our hearts and lives, Lord, and then to live life in response to it, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not know this, but every story that you've ever read or watched, every narrative that you've seen play out on a movie screen or on a television screen or that you had to read for some class somewhere or that you read just for fun, All of those stories can be fit inside six different categories. Literary scholars say that a good narrative arc fits into one of six categories. I won't go into all six of them, but one of them is what is technically referred to as rise, then fall, then rise. We would more commonly refer to that narrative arc as a redemption story that someone rises up to a place of prominence or they maybe start there, that something happens, some challenge, some obstacle gets in the way and they fall or they lose everything or they get tarnished in some sort of way. And then the bulk of the story is about them struggling to overcome that and then it climaxes in a moment of triumph or a moment of overcoming. That is a redemption story. We're incredibly captivated by these. In fact, I would say that the vast majority of the stories that we interact with regularly have some thread of rise, then fall, then rise that's woven all throughout it. We see it not only in fictional stories and narratives, but we also see it play out in the lives of the real people that are around us. Let me give you a couple of examples. Just last month, the University of Virginia men's basketball team won the NCAA college basketball tournament. It was a moment of incredible redemption. A year ago, they went into that tournament as the number one overall seed, which meant they got to play the least good, um, I hesitate to say worst, the least good team in the NCAA tournament. And they became the first one seed to ever lose a game to a 16 seed. They went from the best basketball team in all of college basketball, which they were for most of that season, literally to the answer to a trivia question all over the course of about 40 minutes someday in the future on Jeopardy, they're going to ask who the only one seed to lose in the NCAA tournament is, and the answer will be the University of Virginia. And then over the course of this last season, they played their way back into a top seed in the tournament and then worked their way through the tournament and won the NCAA championship. And it was a moment of incredible redemption, rise, fall, rise. Here's another one. Last Sunday, uh, near this time, I finished up in our third service, usually my normal routine after our services are over is to kind of just mingle around with the people who are here. But last Sunday, I got done. I gave my microphone to Gary. I ran out that door over to my office, grabbed my stuff. I got in the car. I called my wife. I said, do you have it on? She said, I do. I said, will you give me shot by shot, play by play? Because I'm on my way home. And if Tiger Woods wins... I want to watch it live. It's a redemption story. For almost a decade, most of us can remember watching or at least hearing about Tiger Woods just running absolutely roughshod over the best golfers in the world. You tuned in over the course of a weekend not to see if he would win, but how much he would win by, and then he lost everything. Some of it was his own fault. He brought it upon himself. Some of it was outside of his control and it was due to injury. And then last weekend, he had his moment of redemption. He makes that final putt on the 18th hole there at the Augusta Golf Course and he wins the Masters. Rise, fall, rise. That is the redemption narrative arc and it's captivating to us. We're here this morning to celebrate a redemption story. And for as much as I loved watching the University of Virginia, or watching Tiger Woods, this redemption story puts every other redemption story absolutely to shame. Its setback is larger, its struggle is more trying, and the overcoming moment is more triumphant and more powerful. It's personal to every single person in this room, whether you know it or not. And so we are going to read about and talk about and sing about and celebrate that story this morning. And it's what we do here every weekend. You may not believe me, but every Sunday when this church family gathers together, we do the same thing we're doing this morning. We celebrate Jesus. And we could do that by looking at any number of passages all throughout Scripture. But this morning we're going to do so from Zephaniah chapter 3. And we're going to answer three questions What does this passage of Scripture tell us about who God is? What does it tell us about Jesus and the gospel, and what are we supposed to do with it today? So let me just read to you from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies, a deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion, shout loudly, Israel, be glad and celebrate with all your heart. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight over you with singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be like a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. We've been working our way through the book of Zephaniah over the last couple of months. About 80% of the book of Zephaniah is about a very poignant fall. There is this great people, the people of Israel. They had been given unthinkable promises from the Lord that He was going to bless them, that He was going to help them to prosper, that then He was going to use them to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He had called them into a special relationship with Him. And yet they had turned away from that relationship. They engaged in the sin of what we call idolatry. They worshipped something else as God instead of the Lord, Yahweh. And so because of that, through the prophet Zephaniah, the Lord says that there's this day of the Lord that is coming, and it's coming because of Israel's sin. And the day of the Lord entails two things. Most poignantly, it entails a wrath and a judgment that is fair and that is right, and that is in response to Israel's sin. That day, the Lord says through Zephaniah, is coming, and it's coming very soon. The day of the Lord, though, also entails blessing, that those who do return to the Lord and who have been faithful will be blessed, while those who have engaged in this sin of idolatry will receive judgment." The Israelite people were to have this exclusive relationship with the Lord and instead they chose to invite something else into the exclusivity of that relationship. They worshiped other things and so the Lord gives them a warning. A warning that's not meant to make them afraid or to cause them to cower in fear but instead it's a warning that's meant to draw them back lovingly to the God who wants to live in relationship with them. We've talked about over the last few weeks that in any of the books of prophecy in the Old Testament, there's an immediate and a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment of this day of the Lord happened in 587 BC. The people of Israel living in Jerusalem were overtaken by an army from Babylon who swept in and then sent the people into exile. They lost everything. They lost all the prosperity that the Lord had built up from them. Are for them, they lost the land that they were supposed to live in. It was all taken from them. 587 BC. Rise, fall. There's also a future fulfillment to these books of prophecy. And it's a future fulfillment that still serves as a warning for us today. You see, the Lord wants exclusive relationship with humanity. We're told exactly how we can have that relationship with Him, and it still revolves a return to a God who loves us and has given us a warning of what is to come. He's also made a way very clear for us to step back into that relationship. In our sin, we've all fallen, and we need redemption, and so we're here this morning to celebrate how that redemption came. This passage offers a beautiful truth about who the Lord is. And it's this, the Lord saves. That's who He is. That's what He does. It's core to His very nature. If you've got the passage open in front of you, I'm going to move very quickly here from verses 9 all the way to 20, because there are some statements that are made in quick succession that are supposed to grab our attention. It starts in verse 9. The Lord says, "'For I will then restore.'" In verse 11, for then I will remove. Verse 12, I will leave. And it continues on. The Lord has removed. He has turned back. He will rejoice. He will quiet. He will delight. I will gather. I will deal. I will save. I will make. I will bring. I will gather. I will give. I restore. 12 verses. 16 statements that make it clear who is doing the acting. Sometimes we read the Bible and we can feel a little bit like it's in a foreign language. What in the world is this saying? How in the world does it apply to anything? What am I supposed to take away? If nothing else, when you read these 12 verses of Scripture and you see those statements come rapid fire one after another, it should signify to us something very simple, that the Lord is going to act. And that act that he's going to do is an act to save. He told the people of Israel there in Jerusalem that he was going to save and redeem a remnant or a portion of these people that he had called into relationship. He tells us today that he is going to save or redeem in a much broader context, a people for himself from all the nations of the world. He saves. It is not our work. In no way is our redemption an act that we can accomplish. You can do about as much to save yourself when you stand before Him in a moment of judgment as you could do to have resurrected Jesus from the dead that day a couple thousand years ago, which is to say, nothing. It's an act that the Lord does for us. He raised Jesus out of that tomb. He did it on our behalf. He did it for His glory, and we are the unmistakable beneficiaries. The Lord saves it's who He is. What does it tell us about Jesus? How does this passage remind us of the gospel? Well, the Lord saves by His Son. That's the means by which this happens. It happens through Jesus. Our redemption comes through Christ's triumph. When we started working through Zephaniah, if you've been with us over the last couple of months, if you were familiar with any portion of the book of Zephaniah, it was likely Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16. That's the most Recognizable chunks, sixteen and seventeen. Let me just read them. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem Do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness, he will be quiet in his love, he will rejoice, or he will delight in you with singing. Despite all of their sin. In all of their waywardness, the Lord in His grace and in His mercy reminds them, I am among you. I'm with you. That reminder for the people of Jerusalem is the same reminder that He gives us today. And the chief means by which He has been among us was in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the warrior who came to save fighting all the power of sin and darkness with all the might of the sovereign God of the universe. There he was, on the cross, on Good Friday, seemingly dealt a death blow that looked like it would put an end to any hope for humanity's redemption. And yet here we are today, celebrating because he walked out of that tomb and made an absolute mockery of the worst thing that Satan could deal out, death. He was among us for one reason and one reason only, and that is to glorify God by redeeming humanity. He was sent by the Father for the Lord's glory and for our good, and He fought by giving of Himself. Jesus rejoiced in doing the Father's will, and now He rejoices over all those who are His. It was his delight to accomplish the Father's will, even by going to the cross. And now we stand in awe and are quieted in the presence of his love displayed in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Lord saves, and he saves by his Son. Micah Fries, who is a pastor and an author, he's got a commentary on the book of Zephaniah. He says this Salvation comes with a bloody price tag, but it comes with remarkable rewards. I'm going to walk through these verses because the Lord promises some amazing things to Israel. They come right on the heels of the announcement of all this judgment that's on the way, that's intended to help them turn back to the Lord. And then He makes these amazing promises. Promises of redemption that are held out for them and are also held out for us. There are six of these in the text that we're looking at this morning, though I could certainly name more. Here they are, if you're a note taker, you can jot them all down. Make your little chart. If they're not, or if you're not, just follow along with me. Verse 9. For then I will restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with a single purpose. When the Lord redeems us, we get renewal. We're made pure. Our sin is forgiven. We are literally washed clean. In the verbiage here of Zephaniah 3, verse 9, our speech is purified. It literally means that we'll now address the Lord correctly with the right kind of awe and reverence and humility and dependence. Our purposes become purified. Increasingly, we align ourselves with His will. We seek His will instead of pridefully striving after our own and hoping that God might throw some of His blessings toward it. Renewal. We get restoration, verse 11. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. God not only removes the dirt and the dirtiness of our sin, but he also restores our dignity before him. When we're redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ and we're saved by the grace of God, we no longer have shame before the Lord. We stand before him with dignity. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden... They ate the fruit from the tree. We're told that before that they were naked and they knew no shame or they were naked and they had no shame. And then they eat that fruit and the first thing we see them do is hide. They dive into the bushes so the Lord doesn't see them. They string clothing of fig leaves together because their sin has revealed their shame. One of the remarkable Rewards of redemption is that no longer do we need to string fig leaves together in order to hide like Adam and Eve. No longer do we need to feel like we bear the weight and guilt of our sin before the world around us and the God who created us. We get restored, restored to dignity. Our life also gets reoriented. Look at the second half of verse 11. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. This is what he's going to do instead. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. We get reoriented from a life of pride to a life of humility. It's impossible to stand in awe and silence at the cross of Jesus Christ and remain prideful and arrogant. You cannot peek inside the empty tomb and honestly think that you are still the greatest thing since sliced bread. The realization of the Lord's redemption reorients our lives. It's no longer the universe out there revolving around the greatness of me. Instead, it's the universe out there revolving around the greatness of Jesus Christ, and I'm part of that universe. Our lives become oriented around the glory and the grace of God displayed to us in Jesus Christ. Humility rushes in to take the place of pride. We get a reorientation. Verse 13, we also get rest. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Redemption brings rest. We pasture and we lie down. The text says something about there not being any more wrongdoing or telling lies or a deceitful tongue found in their mouths. What's that all about? Those are evidences of sin. Much of the angst and the strife and the striving in our lives comes from the natural consequences of our sin. Not all of the angst and the striving, but much of it. And as we're renewed and restored and reoriented, the natural course of having been saved is that sin is put to death within us. And where there's less sin, there tends to be less strife, there is rest. This is something that Jesus has made available, not just in some distant eternal future, but it's available to us here and now. Verses 14 and 15, we also get refuge or protection. The Lord has removed your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is among you and you need no longer fear harm. The enemy has been turned back back. There's refuge in the safe and loving arms of the Lord. And though the world may assault and attack you from every side, it cannot ultimately win. That's what Jesus displayed when he walked out of the tomb on the third day. That for all of the darkness and all of the evil and all of the brokenness that exists in the world, it will not have the final say. Jesus Christ will. He is a warrior that has secured victory over all of the brokenness and all of the evil that exists in our world. And last, we get reunification, verses 18 through 20. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute for you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all those who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. In the life of a Christian, this is the hope that sustains us. It's the glory of all glories that we will be reunited with Him one day. He will bring us back together and we will experience perfect relationship with Him for all of eternity. We will be reunified with the Savior. We will be reunified with the Lord and not only will we be put back into perfect relationship with him but we'll also be gathered into perfect relational harmony with people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. I mean imagine that day. There's total purity. Not a mark or a memory of sin anywhere within you or anywhere around you. There's complete restoration. You stand before the Lord in full dignity thanks to the work of Christ on your behalf. You get totally reoriented before him. The Bible tells us that in that moment when we stand before the Lord, we are going to see Him in all of His unveiled, unclouded, fully revealed glory, and we're going to understand clearly and fully and finally exactly who He is and exactly who we are, and we will be ushered in to eternal rest, where we've got perfect refuge, where even the fear of an enemy ceases to exist. That day is coming. And it's made available to you by the grace of God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And yet, that act on the cross and that morning when the tomb was empty is not just an act of redemption that we wait for in some near or some long off distant future. It's something that we can have right now. You can be renewed right now and experience that. You might sit here and think to yourself, Tim, you don't understand. My sin is too great. My guilt is too large. If you knew all of the things that I've done, there's no way you could look at me and tell me that I could be renewed and restored. And I will look back at you lovingly and say, that is a lie. There's not a single sin or a single mountain of sin that Jesus Christ did not die for on the cross and has not paid the price for and then triumphed over when he walked out of the grave. You can be renewed and restored right now. Not just something in the distant, eternal future. It's something you can experience in your life right now. And you can have yourself completely reoriented. In fact, you can just be wrecked by the reorientation of the whole thing. Think of the most prideful, arrogant person you know. The guy at work, the person in your family, whoever that individual might be that you think to yourself... Literally, they think the entire world revolves around them at all points. They too can have their world totally flipped upside down today by seeing the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You can have rest. You're sitting here this morning and you think to yourself, Tim, there's so much striving. I'm so tired. I'm worn out by life. You can have rest today made available for you by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You can have refuge, protection from all that assails you in a broken and in a sinful world. Does it mean life's gonna be better all the time? Does it mean that bad things might not still happen? No, it doesn't mean that, but it means that you can know with absolute certainty that Jesus Christ has triumphed over those and one day he'll come back and put a full and a final end to them and you can begin to experience that refuge today. You can be reunified with the Lord today. You can step into unity with the brothers and sisters in Christ from all around the world. Look around you. You get reunified with the body of Christ. There's a news report this morning that eight churches in Sri Lanka were bombed as believers gathered to worship on Easter Sunday. The last thing I saw said that 207 individuals were dead and over 400 had been injured. And we think to ourselves in a church in America that's so far away Yeah, that's bad for them, but I'm going to go worship this morning and it's going to be free and easy and there's no threat and I don't need to worry about it and we can do so here. And yet we've been unified with those brothers and sisters and it should grieve us that they showed up to worship the risen and resurrected Savior and that a bomb went off. We'll join them one day around the throne in worshiping the Father, but we've been reunified with them right here, right now, and it should grieve us that their experience of church this morning was as devastating as it was. Paul David Tripp says this, that the resurrection of Jesus is not only your guarantee of eternal life in the distant future, but also of abundant life right here, right now. You can have all six of those guaranteed and waiting for you in the eternal future, but you can also have abundant life right here, right now that includes all six of those and the way that you have it is by faith in Jesus Christ. The redemption that was made available through Him. How do we receive that? How do we respond to it? What do we do with this passage today? Well, first we receive. Grace is available, but it has to be received. We do this by faith. The Lord has saved. Make no mistake about it. And right now, in your chair, you might feel for the very first time something compelling you toward Him. That thing is the Lord drawing you to Himself. That is His grace. And with all the firm gentleness that I can muster this morning, I say to you, do not resist it. Do not resist the grace and the mercy and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. And after we receive the Lord's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, We live a life of repentance. At the beginning of chapter 2, Zephaniah laid out what a life of walking with the Lord looks like. We call that a life of repentance, of turning and seeking the Lord rather than seeking our own sin, of humbling ourselves before Him as we receive the gifts of grace and walk in obedience. And then having received that grace and Christ's righteousness, we seek to live out of that righteousness. We're sanctified. We receive and we repent, and then third, we rejoice. Let me tell you what the University of Virginia and Tiger Woods didn't do after they had their amazing redemptive moments. They didn't casually walk away and think to themselves, huh, cool. (laughs) They went appropriately bonkers. That's what happened. The end of every NCAA tournament looks rather similar. The team that just won that game goes storming out onto the court and they celebrate together. But what caught my eye at the end of the UVA situation this year is that the assistant coaches in their suits were like in the pile with their players going absolutely wild because of the redemption that had just taken place for them. They celebrated. They rejoiced. When that putt dropped into the bottom of the cup Tiger Woods bent down really calmly. And I thought to myself for a second, that's it? Like, you're just going to calmly bend down like I've won 14 of these already and like pick up the ball like it's no big deal. And then he looked at the crowd and he threw both arms in the air and he let out this huge yell because it was like the weight of the world had been lifted from his shoulders. And the moment of redemption brought rejoicing. That's what it should do to the church. You've been redeemed by the grace of the Lord. You celebrate. Micah Fries again says this, the appropriate response to the redemptive work of the Lord among His people is to throw a party. If you've been saved by God's grace through the faith and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, then this truth is for you. The Christian life is a celebration of the Lord's saving grace. It's a testimony to His triumph. And it's a celebration that does not stop when you walk out of those doors. It's a celebration that doesn't just exist on Easter Sunday. It is a celebration that happens in the life of a Christian every single day. Welcome to it. That's what church is. This is that celebration. Amen? We stand up and we sing because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Yes? I mean, He for real came to this earth and lived among us. A warrior who saves. And then He for real hung on a cross for your sin and my sin and the sins of all of the world. And then He for real started breathing in that tomb. And He ripped off those burial cloths and He pushed that stone out of the way and He walked out of that tomb in ultimate triumph over death and sin and evil, and now we have renewal. We have restoration. We get a life that's reoriented. We have rest, and we have refuge, and one day we'll be reunited with him, and that is what we celebrate, and if you can't come up with a reason to praise him for that, I don't know that you've ever experienced it. That is what Easter is. It's not something that we celebrate one Sunday a year. It's a perpetual state that we live in as Christians. We've been redeemed, and it comes with remarkable rewards that you can have today by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way in which they become yours, but once you've received that grace, they cannot be taken away from you. One of the primary ways as a church that we celebrate this, that we throw this party, is that we sing. And you might think to yourself, Tim, lame party. (laughs) To which I say, look at the words of these songs. The second song that we're going to sing this morning is called When Death Was Arrested. And there is a line in the middle of it that says, But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. And that's when death was arrested and my life began. Eternal life began and abundant life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new and now life begins with you. That's what we celebrate on Easter. If you're visiting with us this morning or you're someone who wandered in because you feel like that's what you should do on Easter, welcome to the party We're about to sing. Yeah? Let's go.